You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this sermon by Pastor Terry Riley titled, The Dreamer Finishes Strong from the sermon series, Joseph. For more info, please visit creekside.org. Most of us would understand this, but what's more important, starting well or finishing strong? Of course, finishing strong is always the most important thing, but it's always good uh, to finish or to start well. We're kind of coming, we're going to come in for a landing today, so I'm going to cr- kind of cram about three talks into one, uh, so as we come into some of the scheduling things that we're going to do. Joseph started out in a very difficult home situation, but he finished really strong. And there's some of you in this room today that you would, we could say about you, that you probably started out really a pretty difficult home situation as well. The narrative of your life uh, did not start really well. Where do you want to end up? What is going to be the focus of your life? Do you ever think, and you go, wow, that's really macabre, but do you ever think about the end? That someday you are going to no longer exist in the flesh in this world. Do you ever think about that? And if you do, do you think about what you would want said about you? In a one sentence, in a one statement, what you would want on your gravestone. Have you thought about that? Because that's kind of important because whatever you want and you believe and you see in the future for your life, that's probably more likely to happen than if you just kind of go, well, you know, I just kind of going to fly through life and hope that something happens good at the end and people kind of like me. Joseph received a dream when he was 17, and we would probably put it in our language today that he received a word from God that he received words from God in and through these dreams. And I don't want the dreams, as we conclude today, I want us to remember that they don't become so mystical that we go, oh, I've never had a dream. Because God wants to speak words to you for your life, for your future, for your ultimate destiny. What does he want your life to accomplish while you're here today on earth? So we want to just kind of get into this conversation, and I want to kind of take a couple of tracks with it. I want to remind some of our wonderful, wonderful young people the importance of starting well and finishing well. And some of us that are a little further along, I want to remind us of the importance of making sure that we're thinking about finishing well, because that's what Joseph did. Now, last week, we ended in chapter 45. Joseph had finally, his brothers come during this famine Uh, this worldwide family, they'd come to him and they said, hey, we need some grain. And Joseph had taken care uh, uh, and stored up and come up with a system and a program to to really uh, put away a lot of grain during his seven years of prosperity. God had spoke that to him, part of the fulfillment of the dream that he would rise up and he would do that. He hadn't seen his brothers. Remember, they're the ones that sold him out to the uh, to a group of uh, nomads that were coming through who then sold him to the Egyptians for, uh, to become a slave. All part of God's plan, but it sure didn't seem like it at the time. So these brothers were actually going to kill him. So now 17 years later, they need, uh, 13 years later, excuse me, 13 years later, they need some food. And so guess where they show up? And the fulfillment of the dream where they bow down before Joseph comes to pass. 
Now, Joseph knows that it's them, but they don't know that it's Joseph that they're facing and bowing down to. So he kind of runs some, them through a couple of drills to see if their character and who they are has changed. And then finally, there comes this great revealing when he sees that they've changed. And he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you thought were dead. And then as we ended last week, he sends, them, uh, he sends the brothers back to get daddy Jacob. And so in chapter 46, we read, or you'll, you'll read on your own, where Jacob comes back, and all of a sudden, he comes to face to face with his daddy. Now, his daddy, Jacob, Joseph, was Jacob's favorite son, and he thought he had been dead for over 13 years. And so imagine the embrace, and imagine the warmth, and the scripture says in chapter 46 that they just literally embraced and embraced and held and wept in each other's arms. And then from chapter 46 on, they, the, the family had all moved to Egypt because Joseph said, listen, you can't take care of yourselves during this famine, so I want you to come to Egypt. I'm going to take care of you. And that's exactly what Joseph, uh, Joseph does. As the second in command to the Pharaoh, he's taking care of his brothers, and he's blessing them and overseeing them and feeding them, so they have this great time. And then... For the rest of the, the chapters in 47, 48, and 49, we just see the family kind of growing together. Jacob is about ready to die, and so he blesses all of the kids and the grandkids and speaks life over them, and that's what's taking place in 49. Now we come to 50 today, and the first uh, 14 verses deal with Jacob who goes to Pharaoh and says, my daddy's dead, and I want to be able to take him back to Canaan, and I want to bury him there. So he gets permission from Pharaoh. They have this great processional that goes back to Canaan from Egypt, and they bury daddy. And then they come back. And we're going to pick it up there today in chapter 50, beginning at verse 15. Now, this is interesting because this is probably, it's at least 20, could be 25 years later. This is probably now five to seven years after Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers and he makes this incredible declaration where they think he's going to kill him and he goes, oh, no, no, no. What you thought was for bad, God meant for good. And he says, don't worry about it. You're good. So now this is about probably, could be uh, four or five, three years later, short time later, we're not for sure. And Jacob, the father, dies. Could be 10 years later. So we're going to pick it up there. Dad's died. He's buried. Everybody's returning from Egypt. Excuse me, from Canaan to Egypt. Uh, chapter 15 says this, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another. So imagine now these 10 brothers. They go, Pop's dead. We're in trouble. If if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay for all of the wrong that we caused them. See, they're still carrying this low-grade guilt because they realize that, that Joseph loved his dad so much and that Jacob loved Joseph so much that maybe he wouldn't do anything while he was alive and cause more stress to his life because of what happened uh, to him when he thought that Joseph was dead. If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the wrong that we've caused him. Dude, it's over 25 years ago now, probably. 
So they sent this message. This is how afraid they are. They send a message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command, and he said, this is to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin and the wrong that they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So these guys, we don't know for sure if Joseph said that or had them sent that letter or if he really even said that, but they're thinking. The whole family has a lot of deception, and so they're kind of looking at this deceptive way to, okay, let's cover our bases here. Because the father says that Joseph will probably honor it. But notice the next part of the verse. It says, Joseph wept when their message came to him. Then his brothers also came to him and bowed down before him and said, we are your slaves. Why does Joseph weep? Here's the reason. That wept, remember we talked last week about how when Joseph revealed himself to him, he did it because he was controlling, uh, he was uncontrollably sobbing and he couldn't control his emotions. Here the word wept has this idea of kind of a gentle weeping. It's almost as if he reads this letter and he starts going, quivering chin and a couple of sniffles. Maybe his eyes start to water and he's... Why is that? Because he can't believe that his brothers don't trust him. He's forgiven it. He already told them that. And now he's thinking, they don't even trust me yet. So this is what he says in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result. The survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid, guys. Again, I told you this some years ago, but now don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of you and your little ones. And then he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Now, Joseph and his father's household remained in Egypt. Joseph lived to be 110 years. So from verse probably 21 to 22 could probably be anywhere from about 40 to 50 years. He saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation and the sons of Manasseh, Manasseh's son, Meshar. They were recognized by Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land that he promised, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying, I'm going to take you out of the Egypt and you're going to get to see Canaan, the, the promised land, which would happen in some close to 400 years. So Joseph made the Israelites take an oath. He said, when God comes to your aid, when he's going to deliver them from Egypt, this takes place in uh, Exodus chapter 13, he says, I want you to carry my bones up from here. I don't want my bones to remain in Egypt. I want them to go back to the land of my forefathers, the land that God promised us. And that actually is fulfilled in Exodus chapter 13. Last verse says, Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and they placed him in a coffin in Egypt. One of the things you're going to see about Joseph, and I think it's one of the things, loved ones, that God calls us to be are game changers. What's a game changer? Well, if you know anything about sports, if you know anything about business, if you know anything about politics, 
It's when something happens, it's when somebody steps up, they make a decision or they do something to change the course of whatever has taken place. In the midst of a basketball game, Stephen Curry is an incredible game changer. In just a matter of moments, he's like this cobra that can strike and throw down threes and change the total direction of a game. There's people that can do that in, in, in sports. There's people that have done it in politics with Abraham Lincoln when it came to the Civil War. He was a game changer there. Happens in business when, um, when just when a, a CEO, a new CEO comes in, he takes over a company, and he turns it around. They're game changers. Joseph was a game changer for Israel and ultimately for his family. Now, we've talked about this a number of times, but to understand the dysfunction of Joseph's family, we've talked about it and looked at it, and I believe, there's nowhere that it says this, but I'm convinced that God's agenda had kind of this, this subtle plan to take him out of that family because his family was highly dysfunctional. They had things like this going on. They had unhealthy competitiveness that was rampant with all of the kids, with the boys, with the brothers, with the family. They had parental favoritism that was completely and totally and consistently on display by the parents. And there was deception that was kind of the family mode of operation. They would get into little groups and they would plot against this one and plot against that one. Deception ran rampant through the family. So it would be a difficult place. This would be a place for the, would be like a graveyard for potential dreams to be left unfulfilled, buried in the pain and abuse and the dysfunction that was taking place in his family. Now, all of us, hear me, loved ones, and I say this with great respect, but all of us are impacted by dysfunction. We're all impacted to some degrees for the things that went on uh, systemically in our families. It could, be, uh, it, it could be just because of the nature and the environment of our parents, or it could be the nurture and environment of our parents. But all of us have been impacted. Now, some of us in this room, it's possible that you've come from a highly dysfunctional family where maybe there was addiction that ran rampant or deception or lying or cheating or infidelity. I mean, you could just name it, drug addiction, alcoholism, whatever it is, all of these affect the family. But here's the deal. None of us are stuck there to live out in the dysfunctions of our family. Joseph is a classic example of how that works. But what's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of times people come from dysfunctional families and they do pretty well. Maybe they just have a small percentage of being really imprinted and affected by it. And then there's other people who grow up in the same kind of a family and they become immobilized. And they can't, they can't function, and they just begin to perpetuate and cause more dysfunction to come and continue generationally through them and their family. But not Joseph. Joseph's one of these people we would call a transitional person. He's this bold individual that says that the family dysfunction, I'm going to transition our family out of it. I'm going to move out of it. And I believe God did that to help him do that. Transitional people set the stage for families to break free. Joseph helped the nation of Israel to break free from the dysfunction that Jacob, really the father of the nation, and Abraham, the father of the nation, had established, being deceptive, being dysfunctional. And he brings and begins to bring a health to the nation generationally through the power of who he was and what God was doing in him. 
And hear me, loved ones, this is what can happen. We're talking about Joseph, but the same thing can happen to you. When the triune God, through the Holy Spirit, begins to reside in your heart and your life, you know what he can do? He can begin to change the dysfunction of any part of the, that you grew up with in your family. Maybe some of you have been abused. Maybe some of you have been mistreated. God can begin to heal that if you will simply allow him to, and you will submit to his spirit and to his life. There was a guy, his name is Ron Rerick. He had a tough life, and he grew up with his father. His father was an alcoholic. He'd get up, and he would, his dad would get jobs, and then he'd never be able to finish the jobs because he just got so drunk all the time. He was always drunk. He'd tell his son, Ron, let's go fishing, and then he would never take him finish fishing because he was always drunk. So Ron grew up, and he began to resent this. After a while, he got onto petty theft. He started using drugs. It wasn't too much longer through the course of his teen years that he began to sell drugs. He began to move from petty theft to major theft, and then he ultimately joins the mob and becomes part of the mob. You can read his story in the book called Iceman. He becomes this person, and they asked him, they said, Ron, because they'd done a couple of books on him, they said, Ron, when did you become really dangerous? And he said, when everybody told me how bad I was, and I began to believe it. That's why they called him the Iceman, because he was afraid of nobody and afraid to do nothing. Matter of fact, it was 1972 that he made this decision with another one of his cohorts that they were going to extort a million dollars out of United Airlines. And it was in the process of that, and after spending 25 years in prison, that he come face to face with who he was. And he began to see these Christians who would start ministering to, the, to him. And one day he got up and he looked in the mirror. He said, I will never be able to change unless I forgive my father that I've hated all of these years. He's in an interview, and one of the guys that wrote a book on him said, tell me, Ron, what was the turning point? And he said this. It's the day that I decided that I would forgive my father and in that same day that I would ask Father God to come into my life. It's an amazing story because he goes on to speak to hundreds of students throughout the United States, tell them about Jesus Christ and to watch their lives. He began to start a prison ministry where he would... uh, minister to prisoners. He would go and minister to prisoners' families, and he'd go into the prisons and had this great ministry. As a matter of fact, at one point, he was on staff at a church, but he had this great ministry because of the depths of everything that he came out of. He began to be a transitional person for his family to begin to change it, and that's what Joseph does. He's got this dysfunctional father, Jacob. I call him Tricky Jake because he was always tricking everybody. He was always deceiving everybody. And all of a sudden, out of that family, God raises up Joseph to do what? To change the character of the nation. So God brings Joseph away from his family. But all of a sudden now, in chapter 46, his daddy comes back. His brothers go and get him, and they bring him to him. And Genesis 42, 28 says, says this, that Joseph went out to meet him. Why is this significant to me? Because you know why? Because people that come out of dysfunction, people come out of broken homes, people that come out of difficult situations, they have a tendency to do what? Blame, blame, blame. If it wasn't for my mom, if it wasn't for my dad, if it wasn't for my brother, if it wasn't for my dog. I mean, we'll blame anybody. 
And it says that Joseph ran out and he greeted him. He didn't blame him. He threw his arms around him and it says that there was this long embrace and they just simply wept together. See, he's kind of like Ron Rick. He, or, or Ron Rick's kind of like him because he already had probably forgiven his dad. He didn't say, Dad, you know something? The reason I'm in this place is because of the way you favor me and the way you mistreated our brothers. No, he just says, Daddy, I'm so glad you're here. Parenthetically, let me just insert this. How many of you still have parents living? Because if you do, I want to challenge you to make sure that if you have any vestiges of bitterness or upset, let it go. And you don't got to go and tell them, you know what, you're a schmuck. You know, you just, you really messed me up. You don't got to go and do that. You just got to make a decision to do that. Now, I've told the story before. I won't tell the story. I'll just give you the kind of the hooks. But uh, it was back in January of 1992 before I came, right before I came here. Lord said to me, because I always wondered, how come my dad, he, he wasn't mean to me, he was, he was just there. And I always said, how come my dad just doesn't really get into me? And the Lord just said to me one day, he said, this is what you do. You honor him the way that you want him to honor you. And so in January of 92, I started doing that. I started calling him. I started uh, asking him for advice. And, um, and then it was in March uh, of 92 that I that Trina and I came here with our family and we started pastoring this church and then it was two months later uh, in May that I come out of a service and found out that he had a massive heart attack at 61 and died. And here's the point. You know what I realized? That from the time that God spoke that to me to say, would you honor your father like you want him to honor you? You know what, you know what happened? I started doing that and he didn't really change much. But when he died, I didn't have any regrets. I didn't go, wow, I wish my dad would have been this. I wish I could have been that. Because I realized my dad was only able to do what he received. And I want to challenge you that have parents that are still alive. Whatever it is, let it go. You don't have to get them to get, you know, just let it go. And make sure maybe today you want to call them and say, Mom or Dad, I, I just want you to know I love you. Or maybe you send them a note that says, I just I hope you're doing well. I was thinking about you today. Maybe even tell them you're praying for them. Whatever that looks like for you. But that's one of the ways that you get freed and you get released from the bondages of dysfunctionality. Now, Joseph was also this great steward. You know what a steward is? It's someone really who works for somebody else. It's somebody who takes care of other people's goods. And it doesn't mean that they get repaid for it. Joseph was a steward, first of all, to Pharaoh. And then he gets thrown in prison unjustly. And what does he do? He becomes a student, or excuse me, a steward to the warden. And he begins to raise up there. And he begins to fulfill God's purposes there. And he begins to do some great things there. Then he gets out. And what does he do? Because of how he was there partially and because of God's favor, he becomes a steward to Pharaoh again. I love that. He was a steward. A steward is someone who doesn't do it for pay. But they know that they're taken care of. They're handling another person's stuff. And so they're going to be accountable for it. They're not on commission. They're not salespeople. It's just like, you know what? I'm a steward of this. I'm a steward of this church. I'm going to leave. And I'm going to have to walk away. And then it's God's. It's God's right now. But he just says, I need someone to kind of oversee it. And that's what I do. 
You're a steward of your family. You're a steward of your resources. It's really not yours. It's God's. And someday you're going to stand before him. You're going to go, God, this is, this is what I've done with what I have. And we get that from Matthew chapter 25 and Luke chapter 19. I don't have time to read the stories to you, but they're two parables that makes it clear that each one of us is given gifts. Now, we're not, given, we're not all given equal gifts, but every one of us is given gifts. And it isn't that we have to produce or do with our gifts what somebody else did. We just simply have to be faithful with the gifts that God gave us. Everything, not everything is equal. We don't have the same as somebody else, but we all have the same accountability. And God has the same expectation that we're going to be people who are steward our resources. Joseph was this incredible steward. Everywhere he went, he made things better, whether it was good times or whether it was bad times. Let me give you a few areas that we see him steward his life in. First of all was his resources and the money. Jesus talked a lot about money. You know why? Because most of us, many of us, or most people in our culture, it gets a grip on us. And Jesus says, I don't want you to, I don't want your money to have a grip on you. I want you to have a grip on it. What do most people do? When they make decisions about their finances, you know what they do? They make them emotionally. If you're taking FPU, or if you want to take FPU, I recommend it because it teaches you how not to deal with your finances and your resources emotionally. Jesus said it this way in Luke 16. He said, if you're faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with much. If you're faithful with mammon, with money, with the resources that God blesses you with, guess what? You'll be faithful with the really important things of your life, spiritual things. Now, let me crowd you for just a moment. Don't get mad at me. I didn't say it. How are you doing spiritually? Is it possible that maybe you struggle in some spiritual areas because you're not faithful in the less important areas of your finances? Maybe you just look at it as, ah, yeah, that's, that's old, that's... Bible, that's old Bible stuff. And you say, I really don't need to be invested in the kingdom, in the church. Ah, oh, you know that stuff about helping the poor. Let the poor take care of themselves. That's not what Jesus said. Savings, shmavings, I'll get to that 20 years from now. See, how are you with your resources, with your money, with your goods? Are you investing in the kingdom, like Jesus said? Are you saving for the future, like Jesus said? Do you take money and at times just do something for the poor or to assist another ministry? Because Jesus says that how you handle that, how you do that is ultimately going to show up in your spiritual life. Joseph was an incredible steward. What did he do? Man, he took care of the whole world because he said everybody's going to give one-fifth of their grain and their goods so that in seven years we can take care of everybody. Joseph stewarded his purity really well. I, I'm going to talk to the students a little bit just briefly, but... 
This, this probably affects a lot of singles, and it could affect any of us. Joseph stewarded his purity. If you remember the story, what did he do? He was 17, 18, maybe at the most 19. And he walks into this house. He's got Potiphar's wife. He's got Potiphar's trust. And she's coming on to him. She's giving him the, oh, come on, honey, baby. Let's get after it. I don't know. What do they say nowadays? I... <laughs> I've never had anybody do that to me. So it's, uh, you know... <laughs> Uh, that's what she's doing. Excuse me. She walks up to her and she goes, come on, lay with me. You know what he's saying? You know what she's saying? Let's have sex. Just in case you didn't know that. But she says, I want to have sex with you. So she's pushing him. And the scripture says the day after day after day. She goes, come on, baby. Come on, baby. You haven't seen this before. And so he, she's testing him and testing him. You know what Joseph does? Who knows what Joseph did? What did he finally do? Yes. That's it, just about, yeah, and then he ran away, which is really a smart thing, be gone thought. But a lot of times those thoughts don't go away, so you've got to be ready for them. But here's the deal. Here's what Joseph, here's what you see. Listen, get these two words, lust and love. See, lust, when you deal with people that want something from you that is not theirs to take, much like Potiphar's wife, that's called lust. So what does lust do? Lust always desires and it takes something that isn't theirs. And we see it very clearly with Joseph. As soon as he tries to run, what does she take? She takes two things from him. She takes his coat and then she takes his reputation. That's what lust does. It will always take something from you. Here's what love does. Love always says, I can wait. Love always says, you're more important than what I want. I'm going to give you what you need, not what take what I want. And hear me, friends, this is really important. That as you grow up, I know I'm like the old guy over here talking to you, like, oh, I've heard this before, but really, truly, if you can get this down, your wife will be so much better. I was a youth pastor for six years. I've worked with adults now for years. I have never once, not once, I mean never had one person, teenager or adult, say to me, man, you know what? I don't know why I ever waited. I just wish I would have taken on anybody and everybody. (laughs) I've never heard anybody say that to me. But can I tell you what I've heard? I've seen tears. I've seen brokenness. I've seen regret from teenagers and adults that said, I wish I would have waited. I wish I would have waited till I knew somebody loved me enough to marry me. And I don't say this with any condemnation because I've been there. I've done that. But be a steward, loved ones. Be a steward, loved ones of your purity. You go, oh man, I've been married for 40 years, so that's good with me. Okay, be a steward of your purity with the computer, with the mouse. Be a steward of, the, of your purity with your mind. It's subtle. 
He was also a steward of his time. Joseph stewarded his time. The psalmist said this, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. You know time can't be saved, it can only be spent. Time can't be saved, it can only be invested. And every one of us is given the same amount of time. Here's what Joseph was always doing. Whether he was in the prison, whether he was working for Potiphar's house, or whether he was in somewhere else working for Potiphar, whether he was overseeing the famine of the world, here's what he was always doing. He was using his time to develop his life and his self. When he was, when he was working for the warden, he could have sat back in prison and said, this really stinks. But no, he got up and he said, let me help you. And he began to organize and to work and to orchestrate work in the prison. You know what else he was doing? He was rehabbing his reputation. Remember what I said? Because Potiphar's wife not only grabbed and stole his coat, but she stole his reputation. So for the years, the 11, 13 years that he was in prison, you know what he did? He did a good job. He did, he did everything that he could do to begin to rehab his reputation that she tried to steal, kill, and destroy, so that when he got out, guess what? He had a great reputation. Whatever he lost 13 years earlier, he was able to rebuild it so that when he stood before Pharaoh again, they would go, wow, whew, you're something else. How about your speech? Do you steward your speech? We never see Joseph attacking the people that attacked him. We never see Joseph complaining about what is taking place, whether it's to the people around him or to God above him. Uh, Proverbs 16.23 says this, that a wise man's heart guards his mouth. Stewarding our speech, loved ones, can ultimately begin to steward our future and what God wants to do in it and where God calls us to go. There's memories, there's relationships, there's energies. I'm sure that he stewarded his memories because he had to, at some point, begin to release and to forget everything that his brothers did for him so that when they stood before him, there wasn't this cantankerous bitterness that came out, this toxic explosion upon them. It was simply, oh, I am your brother. And he embraced them and he loved them and he had to steward his memories. He had to steward his energies where he gave it. Same thing we do, we had to steward his relationships. Because here's what we want to do, loved ones. We want to be a legacy-leaving people because that's what Joseph did. Joseph had dreams that were the promises that God had given him when he was 17, but he had to steward those well. And to do that, he had to steward everything around, else around him like I just talked about. Stephen Covey said this, that when you want to do something well, Go to the end, look at it, and work backwards from what you see. And that's really what Joseph did. Joseph didn't have total understanding of what God was going to do to fulfill in his life. He simply knew when he was younger that God had a plan for him, and everything he did was to work around that. And he knew people are going to bow down to me, so i got to get ready and go and work toward that. He saw the end, and he worked backwards. Here's the deal with our life of faith, loved ones. Most of us know and understand this, but this is a truth that you don't want to forget. God will test every word that he speaks into your life. God will test all the dreams that you have. And that goes for you, young people. 
when I talk to you about this purity thing, you will be tested there. There will be some suave dude that's going to come up to some of you pretty girls and go, ho, 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 you're the hottest. Or some girl's going to come up to you, David, and go, ho, 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 you're the coolest. Everything's going to get tested in your life of faith. Why is that? Well, because God is always at work in us. And here's what happens. He's really not, you know, we think, oh, man, my marriage, it's really tough. God's really testing my marriage. No, he's not. Oh, man, my finances, they're in really bad shape. Oh, God's really testing my finances. No, he's not. Oh, my health, I've got a sickness. God's really testing my health. No, he's not. I really got this bad situation. I think God's testing me. Not the situation. You know what he's testing? He's testing your faith. Because ultimately, it's the faith that we have that determines and develops everything in our life and our walk with him. Well, what do you mean? Well, see, if I, 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 I got to come to these crossroads and everything that I face, and this is hard, because when you're going through it, you want to be able to do whatever and scream out and and trusting Jesus isn't the easiest thing when you're going through any of those things that I married, uh, excuse me, that I mentioned, but that's ultimately what it's about. Am I going to trust what I see and feel, or am I going to trust what God says? When Joseph is in a prison, is he going to trust what he feels and sees being in prison, or is he still going to trust and have faith that God's going to produce what he said he would do? And it's the same thing for you and I, loved ones. When you make a decision to have a great marriage and you feel like God says, here's what I want you to have a great marriage, I want you to have a great family, that's going to get tested. But it won't be though, it may come, it may show in those areas, but it's really about your faith. Are you going to believe God? Stephen Furtick says it this way, that we think our journey of faith is is a straight line, but it's not. I mean, it's serendipitous, it's circuitous, it's all over the place. Would you agree? Yeah. Would you agree? Or has your life of faith just been really easy? Piece of cake. (laughs) Mine hasn't. If you look at Joseph, you want to put Joseph on a map, here's what it would look like, honestly. What's that look like? A roller coaster, yeah. How many, raise your hand. Do you ever feel like you're on a roller coaster of faith? Oh, good, man. Some of you should be preaching this stuff. Yeah. Uh, Somebody, uh, a former Creeksider blessed our church and said, do something for the staff. So they're going down to Disneyland. And uh, how many really love Disneyland? Okay, good. I'm not with you. I'm with the others. I've been to Disneyland way too many times for youth group, for family, for my kids, for my grandson. It's not my favorite. It's not my happiest place in the world. It's not bad. It's not bad. But they're going to go, and I know that some of them, they are going to get up at 4 in the morning. They're not going to get to bed till 3 in the morning because they're just going to ride until they can't ride and eat churros and everything until they can't do anything else. God bless them. When I was when I was younger, 
um, and I had my, my, young, my, my, my boys, I went and I took my three-and-a-half-year-old oldest son, Joel. You know what the first thing I did when I got in there with him? Have you ever heard of the teacup? Okay. Now, this kid loved excitement. So we get in there, and I just turned this kid. You know, he was just sitting there like this because the centric, centrifugal force was so strong, he could just sit there. And I was loving it. And Trina was, oh, look at him go. He was digging it. And when we got off, I was so sick. <laughs> it's, excuse me, can I just say puke in here? I did not. I wanted to. I just let me, but I, I didn't. And I was sick the rest of the day, but I champed it out like a good dad, and we did everything. And, but as, as our boys got older and we would take them together, I had a, a Joel, our oldest, he loved doing the most crazy things. My younger son, he just talked about it, you know? And then when you get in line, he'd want to get out. So finally he goes, Dad, 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 let's, let's go Space Mountain, which was my favorite ride until I was about 40 and I started getting vertigo, you know? I mean, that's kind of why I moved from up here to here. It's, you know, it's not quite as far away from the floor. But Dad, 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 let's, let's go on Space Mountain. And we get in line and we'd have to leave again because he'd chicken out. And then finally I got him. I said, we're going. And then we're on there. And I, go, I go, James, how's it going? You enjoying this? Oh, man, I can't wait. This is going to be great. You know, he's got his eyes covered. And uh, so finally, the you know, space mountain takes up, and you're, you're going around, and you're going up. And then he's really freaking out because he goes, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And I go, you're going to go up here and go off a cliff. And, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, I just tried to scare him. That's what good dads do, right? So we go up, and then all of a sudden, we start going down, and it's exhilarating. He pulls his hands away, and he's watching it, and he's loving it. And then pretty soon, we come to a corner. And then another, you know, another climb, and then another one. Can, can I tell, isn't that like the, don't you kind of see the spiritual life like that? You're going along, and oh my gosh, what's going to happen? What happens when I crest this thing over here? And then all of a sudden, you start going down, you go, wow, this is cool. Thanks, God. I'm loving life and living large. And then all of a sudden, something happens. And that's life. See, every one of us in this room, maybe, maybe not every one of us, but most of us, I'll tell you what I'm hoping for. I can't wait till the day maybe sooner than later there were everything is perfect and good and my spiritual life is as Steve Furtick says a straight line there's no ups there's no downs there's no sharp curves anybody else hope for that it's not going to happen can I tell you something there's no checkered flag in this thing until you die well that's encouraging well let's be truthful doesn't matter where you, you it's just not going to happen. And here's where a lot of us get stuck. Robert, would you stand up, please? No, I, I won't embarrass you too much. Just, uh, this is Robert. This is where Robert is. This is, let's pretend this is where I am right now. You know what I always want to do? Honestly, I want to get over there. And for some reason, I feel like I'm kind of stuck here. Did anybody ever feel like that? I just, I want to get going there, but I'm stuck here. Stand there, please. Clem, would you stand up? Hi, Clem. Sorry, I'm not going to embarrass you either very much. Um, here's what happens. Th that's not where I am. Where am I? I'm over there. 
Okay, so that's my, this, is, this is a straight line kind of, but from here to there, it's always crazy. But I'm over there, but here's where you and here's where I kind of get mixed up sometimes. I want to go past. I want to move on with God. I'm tired of messing up and two steps forward and one step back. And I get discouraged. Does anybody, raise your hand if you get discouraged in your walk sometimes. Thank you, some of you. I appreciate that. Because I do. And I want to get over there. Because God's called me there. but I'm here. And when I get discouraged, you know what I've had to realize i got to do? This space right in here is, is kind of hard to live in until I look back and I go, ah, you know what this guy's doing here? This is where I came from. This is where I started. Look how far I've gone. That's how far you've gone. And as, as I'm going through here, as I'm walking through here, I've got to remember, okay, God, you're at work. Wow, what's this? This is probably 13 years for Joseph. And he's thinking, God, when are the people going to start bowing down to me? I'm stuck over here in prison. It's been 13 years. And then all of a sudden, when you realize God has got your back, and all you've got to do is focus on going forward and where God has you. It just gets so much simpler. Here's what I love. I, there's a number of people I'm praying for and keeping in contact with that have count, uh, cancer. One of those people, you know what they said to me all the time? When I first diagnosed, you know what they said? God's got this. Oh, I love that. Hear me. Tell the person next to you, God's got this. Go ahead, tell them. You're in this period right here, and you want to get there. You just tell somebody, God's got this. God's going to get you from here to there. And thank God you're not back there. Amen? Is that true? That's right. Thank you, gentlemen. But some of us have got to see ourselves like that. Otherwise, we get stuck. And we forget the great things that God is already doing. That he's at work. Because we can get so discouraged. You don't arrive, loved ones, in this journey of faith. I got to be done. Let me just give you this last one quickly. Remember the generations. Care for them. We got to do everything we can as we can as a church to reach them. Here's one of the things that we're going through right now as a church, as a staff. We're trying to become strategic in what are we going to do to make sure that we're going to get younger. I love this group over here. I love this group over here. But I also understand where the future is. And every one of us in this section have got to make sure that we understand where the future is. And we can't forget them. Because it's so easy as a church gets older that we can begin to look down and go, oh no, we can't give room for youthfulness. And I'm talking about youth with character. I'm talking about youth with skill sets. But we've got to bring them along. Joseph encounters his brothers in chapter 50. And when their brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds against, 
He holds a grudge against us. Joseph says, 17 years ago, I told you I forgave you, and it's done. It's so easy when we get older to become just a little bit cynical because we've had just enough experience with people and situations and circumstances in life. We can become kind of cynical, maybe even a little bit bitter, maybe even carry around a little bit of a grudge. It's like the, uh, this, this older woman who... She was bit by a rabid dog, and she went to the doctor, and she got tested. And uh, the doctor goes, wow, I'm really sorry. It doesn't look good for you. You got rabies. She grabs a pen and paper, and she starts writing feverishly and writing down some stuff. And the doctor goes to her and goes, are you, are you making some notations for your will? And she goes, oh, no way. I'm writing down the names of the people. I'm going to go bite, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Because that's how we can get. As we get older, we go, you know what? I'm going to go bite some people. I'm going to pay them back. There are people who save up their anger and their bitterness, and they're going to get even. And the brothers are concerned that that's what Joseph has done. Hey, now that dad's dead, maybe he's going to take some vengeance. No. He reiterates what he said to them years earlier. He said, you know what? What you meant for evil, what you meant for bad, what you meant for wrong, what you meant to hurt me, God used for good. And when you begin to see the sovereign purposes of God at work in your life and around you and in a church, you can begin to step back and go, yes, we're going to applaud and we're going to live and we're going to pass on to the next generation. How do you make sure that you don't get bitter, don't get cynical. Well, you just realize that things change. And like the brothers, when you're told that you are forgiven, believe it. Don't we have a tendency to do that with Jesus? Oh, Lord, man, I just messed up again. Can't believe it. And, and, and Jesus goes, <laughs> again, did what? Well, you know, uh, no, I don't. And this isn't like some kind of, you know, license and some kind of pass and do sin and don't have to worry about it. But God, when he forgives, Scripture says, the psalmist, I said it last week, as far as the east is from the west, so are our sins for us. And God remembers them no more. And if you want to be a cynical, bitter person, then you'll not only remember your sins, but the sins of everybody else. But if you want to be free, if you want to break free from any dysfunctional entanglements of your soul, be a person who forgives. Be a person who stays in the seat with your heavenly Father during the roller coasters of life and never forget how far he's brought you. Let's stand, please. you just bow your heads for a moment and I just think it's always, it's always important to take some time just to have a moment for you where you can say, Lord, what are you speaking to me today? What is something that you're speaking to me? For some of us, you may feel like you're in this space and you're waiting for God to deliver you, but maybe you need to be saying, God, what is it you want me to do to fulfill my time, to watch my tongue? 
to build my life. Maybe for some of you, God's saying, you know something, I'm not done with you. I know you're 72. I know you're 61. I know you're 81. I'm not done with you. I still have dreams. I still got words. I still got purposes for you. Maybe for someone, it's forgiveness that you need to forgive somebody or you need to forgive yourself and know that God's forgiven you and begin to walk in that so you can move out of some of the dysfunctional patterns of your life. Maybe you're a single. Maybe you're a married. Maybe you're a teen. There's been some purity issues and God's saying, you know what? I want to deal with those today. And this is your opportunity to say, you know, Lord, man, I've been getting just a little too close. And you just rest in his power. And you just seat yourself with your father in the roller coaster of your spiritual journey. Or maybe you've never made that decision to say yes to Jesus and embrace the spirit that lives in you and the father who will protect and go before you. And if you do, maybe you want to do that today. And I would encourage you just to say, Father, I'm a sinner. I need your touch. I want to be faithful follower of you and you can do that right now but would you just take a moment as you stand there and say Lord would you just speak to me in my heart today Father we stand here as kids as your children There's not a whole lot of Josephs that we ever see in the scripture besides Daniel that really just, man, everything they did worked and everything they touched spoke of you and everything they said or didn't say was right. But what I believe the reason people are here today is because they they want a touch of that. And to get that, they really need a touch of the Savior, Jesus. And I pray that that as each one of us, as we stand before you, God, you would speak to us and encourage us. Let us know, God, that you're at work in us. For some of us, we forget because it's been so long that we're in this space, that we're here, but you're taking us there. And let us never lose sight of that. Give us that hope. So I thank you, Lord, for these people that make up this church. I pray your blessing upon them. You speak to them, Lord. Give us that spirit of Joseph because we walk in the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord, for each person that is here today. You know where they are. Bless them, watch over them, speak to them in your strong name. 